Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to go old school. I've got a physical Bible here this morning, and uh, we're going to get into the Word. Uh, before we do that, I just want to encourage everyone, uh, you know, we, we're... Uh, we are trying to find new ways to do ministry in this strange time, and uh, God's going to give us grace. I really feel like it's, it's similar to uh, when the church suffered persecution in, in, in the early church. I'm not saying we're being persecuted. I'm saying that it's unusual circumstances, and it scattered the church to go to areas they had not gone before. And this virus, this way of doing church has caused us to push into spheres and and I technology we haven't used before. We've got a great team of guys that are, are building the technology, uh, just a world-class system, and I so appreciate what they're doing and uh, enabling us to do that. So God is good. And I, I want to encourage you, this thing's going to pass. As uh, you know, I grew up as a grandchild of people who went through the depression, and I remember hearing stories of the depression, and that is in the past, and this too shall pass. God's going to rebuild. As I've been praying about this and just asking the Lord about this, I really don't have any clear word from the Lord on when this is going to stop, when this is going to be over. I know that there's been some prophecies out there that predated the breakup of this virus and I'm praying towards that end uh, but I tell you what this I've seen this picture as I've prayed a number of times and that is of this raging fire and as the fire burns itself out green growth begins to come and there's fresh growth if you ever seen someone burn off their field or burn their grass the new growth of grass is so rich and green and beautiful and I really believe that God's going to give us a new birth there's going to be I believe God's going to restore the economy stronger than ever and I believe United States of America is going to come out stronger than ever. I really do. And uh, so we're, we're praying towards that end and just asking the Lord what he wants to do in us. So what I want to talk about this morning, I want to preach on this morning, and uh, we're, going to we're going to start a new series. We're coming up on uh, the Passover. We're coming up on Resurrection Sunday that we celebrate on Easter. And in preparation for that, I want to look at the blood of Jesus. I want to look at why the blood of Jesus is powerful. You know, when I was a kid, we used to sing the song, There's Power in the Blood, and we'd, we'd talk a lot, you know, we'd, we'd sing different songs along those lines. A lot of times we sing and talk about things we really don't understand. And the, the problem with that is if we don't understand it, we can't leverage it to the degree that we could. And so God wants us to understand the blood. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the blood of Jesus over the next few weeks. And what I want to look at primarily uh, over these next few weeks, uh, and, and let me just say this, that the reason, one of the reasons I'm looking at this is... Uh, you know, as we come up to Passover, uh, if you were of my generation, your frame of reference for Passover is Charlton Heston's movie, The Ten Commandments. And so they had that spooky green mist coming through the, you know, floating through the neighborhood, and they would paint the blood on their doorposts, and that sp spooky green mist would pass them by. Well, Scripture says that if I see the blood, I will pass over you. And it was their protection against this death angel. There's power in the blood of Jesus to protect 
protect us. But if we don't understand that power, it's, we're not able to leverage it, we're not able to cooperate with it to the degree that we should. Now you say, well, pastor, come on. You know, isn't the blood just something that God deals with and, and as long as it was an exchange between the Father and the Son, we're good? Not necessarily, because there's a, there's a place in which we apply the blood. There's a difference between the shed blood and the sprinkled blood. There was the blood that was shed for the remission of sins, but there was the sprinkled blood which was applied. We need to learn how to apply the blood to our lives. You know, we can, we can get a little arrogant and think, oh, that, you know, those old timers used to talk about pleading the blood and kind of giggle about that. But the fact is, there is a place where we learn to plead the blood. We learn to apply the blood to our own lives. And so what we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks is this idea that the blood of Jesus has a, an application both to heaven, or not both, but to heaven to earth and to hell. That the blood of Jesus satisfies the demands of the Father. That is the foundational efficacy. That is the foundational power of the blood. That it satisfies the Father. But secondly, it also meets the demand of the human mind. There's, there's a demand that or the necessity, the need of man. So the demand of God and the need of man are both met in the blood. And third... It answers the strategy or the attack of the enemy. And so we want to understand that the blood of Jesus has an application in all three realms. It has an application in answering God in heaven. It has an application of meeting the human need on earth. But it also has an application of the onslaught of hell. It's the answer that we give hell. And there is a progression to the power of the blood. The foundation of the power of the blood is what it means to God. God values the blood of his dear son. And that is more than a sentimental value. You. It's not that God says, oh, that's, that was my son who shed his blood, and so therefore that blood is of value. It's more than a, a sentimental thing. It is a legal thing. There is a reason the blood of Jesus is powerful, and there's a reason that God values it. And only when we understand how God values it can we actually begin to value it to the degree we need to ourselves. So until we understand how it answers the demand of God, will we understand how it answers the need of man. And so there's a foundational element to it answering the demand of God, then it answers the need of man, and then we can use it as a weapon against the enemy. And scripture is very clear. The book of Revelation speaks of uh, how the saints overcame him, speaking of the adversary, the devil, how he overcame the demonic realm through the, the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they love not their life unto the death. Again, the foundation of their, uh, their resistance or their, their attack against the enemy was the blood of the Lamb. And notice that they, they used the blood towards the enemy. All three of those were directed towards the enemy. So there's a place in which the blood of the Lamb is directed towards the enemy. There's a place in which your testimony, your story, the history of your redemption and your history with God can actually be used against the enemy. And the fact is that we need to love not our life unto the death. Because if we love our life unto the death, the enemy can touch us and get us to back off. And so those, those we're going to look at over these next number of weeks uh, the power of of the blood and how it answers the need of all three. Uh, 
So, if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Now, uh, those of you who have been around Heartland for some time have probably heard me preach out of this passage. Uh, this, this passage in Hebrews chapter 2 is literally a direct quote from uh, Psalm chapter 8. And in this passage, it really gives us an overview of redemptive history. And the reason we go to this passage is in order for us to understand any subject, not just the blood of Jesus, but especially the blood. But in order for us to understand any subject, we've got to go back into eternity past. We've got to understand God's original intention. We, we create error by starting our doctrine from the fall or starting our doctrine from the redemption found in the cross. All doctrine finds its beginning in the eternal heart of the Father as the Creator, a Father who wanted many sons. You cannot understand the Father without understanding His fatherhood. That what motivated Him to create all of this was His desire to have a large family. Scripture says that God is, God is creating a family and He had an only begotten, but he wants many begotten. He had his one and only son, Jesus, his unique son, Jesus, but through Jesus, he wanted to create an extended family. And that is the, the dream within the heart of God that gives the, the, the purpose or the reason behind all of creation. And so we need to go back into eternity past to understand the power of the blood. So we're going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read uh, in verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking but there is a place where someone has testified and then he begins to quote Psalm chapter 8 he says what is man that thou art mindful of him I'm going to quote the King James what is man that thou art mindful of him the son of man that thou would visit him you made him a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet and with those words the psalmist framed God God's original intention. That God created the world and put everything under man's feet. That was God's eternal desire. But the, the writer of Hebrews uh, goes on and adds to this. I didn't quote verse 7, the first part. You made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, and put everything under his feet. And so man had this elevated role in all of creation. And then the, the writer of Hebrews adds this halfway through verse 8. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. So in those first few verses from Psalm chapter 8, we have a picture of original intention in creation. This was how God created things to be. And God is longing to restore that on a mass scale. That everything is under man's feet. But the writer of Hebrews adds in the second part of verse 8, Yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. Why does he say that? He's referring to the effects of the fall. So we have original intention, 
in creation. And then we have the devastation of the fall. He said we don't see everything subject to him. Because man has abdicated his role and been stripped of that ruling power by becoming subject to sin and the enemy. And so then it says this uh, in verse 9. And here's where we come into the incarnation and God's answer to the devastation of the fall. Verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Then verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so now we're getting a picture of how God's plan worked. And all of this is intimately connected with our theology of the blood of Jesus. Again, the blood of Jesus is not precious simply because it's the blood of God's son. The reason the blood of Jesus is precious is because of the process that Jesus walked through. Jesus lived through a process of what you and I would refer to as discipleship or maturity. We, he was being made holy. Uh, he says here, uh, the author of their salvation was made perfect through suffering. I remember years ago uh, reading that verse and being so intrigued and so confused, under, just wondering, what does that mean? And God began to deal with me about this whole subject, the subject of the blood. It was back in 1988 and 89. I was about three years old. No, really, I was about 20, 23 years old at the time. And, and uh, I had gotten saved in 1983, five years earlier. And I had gone after God with my whole heart. We need to install a laugh track for my jokes. It would just really help me. So, it, uh, But we have, in, 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 during that time, I had gotten saved. I was going after God with my whole heart. But what happened is I began to just struggle with condemnation and the accusation of the enemy. I really struggled in feeling accepted by God. I knew heaven would be my eternal home, but I felt I was disqualified to really walk as a strong believer this side of heaven. I knew I was saved by grace, but I thought that I was sanctified by my own works. I thought I had to earn the approval of God on this side of heaven. Well, that really created a dilemma because I was called to full-time ministry. And the enemy was leveraging that condemnation to disqualify me in my own heart. And so I remember being in Bible school thinking, I, I'm a fraud. I, how am I going to be going into ministry when I can't really live the Christian life? Now you need to understand, uh, it wasn't because I was living in blatant sin. Uh, I, I had repented. God had delivered me from alcoholism and, and lust and all those things. By and large, I was living free from those besetting sins. It, was, it wasn't that I was doing the negative things. It was that I was struggling with condemnation because I wasn't doing enough of the positive things. I was really struggling because I felt like I wasn't praying enough and I wasn't fasting enough and I wasn't reading the word enough. And no matter how much I did, I still felt condemned. And it's because I didn't understand how the Father values the blood of Jesus. 
And because I didn't understand how God values the blood, I didn't value the blood in the right way. And because I didn't have a value for the blood, I couldn't use it as a weapon from the enemy to strip him of his primary strategy that he uses against the, the believer. And so God took me into a season uh, in 1988 into 1989 where he began to teach me about the blood of Jesus and the foundational framework of the theology that he began to teach me was out of Hebrews chapter 2. And what God began to show me is how the reason that God valued the blood of Jesus was not because it was the, was not because A, that it was his son, that he had some sentimental affection because, well, that's my boy, so I'm going to make his blood more valuable than others. And that would be an understandable sentiment by God, but that was not the reason that God valued the blood. Number two, God didn't value the blood of Jesus just because it was sinless blood. It wasn't just because Jesus hadn't done the wrong things. There was an added dimension that really gives power to the blood. And we need to go back into the Old Testament and understand that Scripture very clearly says in Hebrews chapter 7, I mean uh, Exodus chapter 17, I believe it is, uh, Deuteronomy 17, or Exodus 17, verse 11, it says this. Where's Bill Culver? Bill, if you could text in your, the, the, uh, the right Scripture reference. But it says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. In other words, the blood contains the life. The blood contains the moral life as well as the physical life. And so the weight of a man's life morally is in his blood. And, and a matter of fact, that the moral implications of an individual's life is literally passed down through the generations. That's why we talk about people uh, coming under, uh, you know, curses from family lines. The bloodlines can, uh, you know, really carry uh, spiritual blessing or spiritual curses through the bloodline. And so we come under, we're cut, that's why we need to understand we're cut off from Adam and we're grafted into Christ so that we can receive the benefits of Jesus' blood and not the blood of our forefathers. And that's all. That's a whole other subject. But here's the, here's the point. That the life is in the blood. Well, what life was in Jesus' blood? The key is in this verse in Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to what it says again. Verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory... So Jesus is bringing us through this process. He's not concerned with merely getting you saved. It's not merely you being justified. Romans chapter 8 says that he who he foreknew, he predestined, who he predestined, he called, who he called, he justified, and who he justified, he glorified. He's not merely uh, wanting to justify you and get you forgiven. He wants to glorify you and get you free. He wants to bring the full uh, manifestation 
manifestation of his dream, what he's placed within you, that potential, uh, that, that stamp of his nature inside of your nature. You are made in the, the image of God. And there is a facet of his nature locked within your DNA, locked within who you are that nobody else carries. And God longs to let that be manifest in this hour of human history. And so we cooperate with him so that the glory of God can be manifest in us. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, theologian and philosopher and revival leader, he said, grace is glory begun, glory is grace completed. In other words, Glory is the completion of all that God has for us. And so we cooperate so that we can bring Him glory by moving into the glory that's been assigned to us. God wants to glorify you. He wants to bring you into glory. The consummation of the grace of God, His activity in your life, so that you become all you were called to be, so that you can bring Him glory. So God is bringing many sons to glory. He said it's fitting that in doing that, Jesus in doing that, that it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now that word author can be translated uh, captain. I think the NAS translates it captain. I love that one translation that calls it pioneer. In other words, Jesus is forging the way for you and I to come into glory. He, he, he blazed the path for us. He was the first son that came to glory so that you and I could follow that same path. What is that path? And why was it fitting that Jesus would be made perfect in that way? Because that's the way you and I are going to be made perfect. What is that way? It says that he was made perfect through suffering. Jesus was perfected by the things he went through this side of the cross, or his, the, the other side of the cross. Between Jesus' birth and his death, he was in a developmental plan ordained by the Father to pull out the glory that was in him. And the path that was demanded is that suffering would make him perfected. Jesus was not born perfect. Now I know at first hearing that sounds heretical, that Jesus was not born perfect. But you need to understand what that word perfect means. That word perfect literally means completed. You see, Jesus in his birth was not all that God desired. Jesus could not have given his life as a baby and purchased our full redemption. That's why when Herod tried to take him out, uh, you know, at, at birth, God protected Jesus so that he could grow into adulthood. And scripture says, once made perfect, in Hebrews 5, he became the source of eternal salvation. He had to be made perfect before he could give his life for you and I. And so, Jesus as a baby was innocent. He had not done any of the wrong things. The problem was that he hadn't done any of the right things. You see, God demanded more than innocence. He demanded maturity, holiness, perfection, uh, godliness. Uh, a number of words the New Testament writers utilize to sum up this idea of God bringing us to completion. God was in... in uh, God had in mind much more than you simply being forgiven of your sins. 
God is not interested in just getting you saved so you can skate through life. He is zealously after all the potential he put in your life. And so he is going to put you through the rigors. He's going to put you through things so he can call the greatness out of you so that you can become all he intended so that the world can see that facet of the glory of God that only you carry. And if we don't understand this, we end up kicking against the goads, so to speak. We end up resisting God. We're fighting God. As he is operating, we fail to cooperate. And we end up like Balaam, kicking the donkey, blaming the donkey we're sitting on, not realizing that the angel of the Lord is in front of us, ordaining this opposition in our life to bring something out of our life. And so we need to understand God's plan. And it was fitting that Jesus would be made perfect that way because that's how you and I would be made perfect. Jesus was made perfect through the things he suffered. That's why Jesus at his baptism, when he comes to his cousin, John the, the baptizer, he said he, he wanted to be baptized. And John said, oh no. He said, man, I, I, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I can't baptize you. And Jesus said, I must fulfill all of righteousness. There was a righteous requirement in the symbol, the prophetic act of water baptism that Jesus understood it was important for him to fulfill. And so Jesus submitted to the baptismal waters because he was fulfilling all of righteousness. Similar to what Paul said at the end of his life in Philippians, he said, I have run the race and I have, uh, I have finished my, my you know, the, the race marked out before me. Jesus had a race. There were righteous requirements that he had to fulfill. He was living his life under the anointing. When he went into the baptismal waters, he left left his, his self-life behind. It wasn't a sinful life, but Jesus left his self-life, came up out of the baptismal waters, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he was under the anointing. He was being led by the Spirit, and the Spirit would lead him, and as he yielded to the Father, God was forging character within him so he could be all he, he was called to be. He fulfilled all of righteousness. Even to the last moments of his life. We see in the garden where Jesus is praying. And he's, he's stressing out. And literally there's a, a phenomena where you're at the breaking point And the capillaries in your, in your skin begin to burst. And you can literally sweat drops of blood. With sweat it mixes with your blood. And it's, you're, you're, there's blood coming down your face. And Jesus was in the garden. He was at the emotional breaking point saying, God, if there's any other way... Provide it, but not my will, but thine will be done. He's wrestling through, yielding himself to the Father. It was no easy task because he was walking it as a man. And as he did that, he said, God, not my will, but thine will be done. Scripture is very clear. No man took Jesus' life freely. He gave it. And on the cross, some of his dying words, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Paul, in reference to that, says that Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. His final act of obedience was yielding up his life to the Father. And in that moment, he was offering up his life, his blood, his lifeblood to the Father. 
So we need to understand that the, the life that was in the blood of Jesus was not merely innocent blood that had never sinned. It was perfected blood. It was mature, a mature life. It was a life made righteous by, the, by obeying the righteous requirements of the Father. It not only never did anything wrong, it did everything right. It fulfilled the requirements of the Father. And that was the blood that was poured out at Calvary. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, if you'd turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 9, it says this. Verse 11. When Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of the creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. It's an astounding statement. It says, essentially what it's communicating to us is that for the first, and essentially he'd be the only person that will ever do this, Jesus entered the whole, most holy place uh, by virtue of his own righteousness. He came before the Father. Because the one requirement that God has for us to worship, the one requirement that God has for you and I to enter his presence is a perfected life. A life that never did anything wrong and has always done everything right. It's always obeyed. And that's the one requirement that God has for us to come boldly before the throne of grace. Now you and I know that our conscience, when we begin to evaluate our own life, we, we understand we don't have that in and of, of ourselves. But that is the purpose of the blood. The Father values the blood because in the blood, His dream of having a, a, a man that would fulfill all of righteousness was met. You see, you go back to original intention. God formed Adam and Eve in the garden. And He made them in His image. But that image was potential and that making was not a momentary process that was done when God poked Adam and made him a belly button and said, you're done. It was... God was making him through a process of development. One of the first classes was that he had to pass, one of the first tests he had to pass, was would he forgo the temptation of eating the fruit that God forbade. And as we know, Adam failed the test. And in so doing, plunged all of us into sin. And so did God abandon his plan when he said, when, when, when there was that, that conversation among the Godhead saying, let us make man in our own image, did God abandon that plan? No. God's word will not return void. And God had a, a zealous intention to fulfill his own desire. I will have a man made in my own image. And Jesus became that man. It was God stating a desire and then becoming the fulfillment of his own desire and then inviting us to live in the good of that. And so Jesus took on human flesh, a body God prepared for him, Scripture says. And Jesus perfected his humanity. And he presented himself before the Father. And we see in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus entered the most holy place by the blood. The value of the blood to the Father 
is that it fulfilled every righteous requirement that God ever had for man. Back when I was struggling under condemnation to such a severe degree, I, would, uh, there were t- I, I had set these disciplines on my life. I was going to rise at four. I was going to go over to the church for two hours. I was going to go to the church. Uh, there was a time where I was going two hours a night. I was going to, and then I was going to spend an hour in the Word, and I was going to memorize Scripture. And I remember just crashing and burning, feeling that, God, I can't do this, because I was thinking that I was made righteous by my own works. And it was then that God began to speak to me about the blood and to realize that my righteousness is in the blood. Just as the priest in the Old Testament would come before, once a year he would bring a bowl of blood into the Holy of Holies and he would present it to God, pouring it on the mercy seat, the lid on the the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus walked into the throne room of God. Scripture says in Hebrews 9, he didn't enter the holy place that is a part of our created thing. You see, Moses had gone on the mountain and got the blueprint from God. He saw into heaven. He saw the literal structure of heaven and replicated that on earth. The symbolism was the temple and the tabernacle. The reality was in heaven itself. And Jesus came into the holiest of all, the throne room of God, and he had a bowl of blood and he presented it to the Father. And as he did that, God opened, he rent the temple and opened it for all of us to enter in. And so when we understand how God values the blood, it then opens the door for us to begin to value the blood. I remember during that time, I was, uh, I had just come on staff at Teen Challenge and God was speaking to me about all these things and I was just crying out to him because I was so just and stressed out. I was having some uh, stomach issues and because I, I was so stressed and just crying out to God on this. And I remember one day in worship, uh, as we were worshiping the Lord, all of a sudden I, I saw this quick picture at the time. I didn't realize it was a vision, but I saw this quick picture. And it was I was on the outside of this room. And I could see through the doorway, and the room was massive. It was like a, at least a gymnasium-sized room. I couldn't see the other side of the room from that open door, but I could see through. And the, the room had this polished glass floor. And I knew intuitively in my spirit it was the throne room. And there was this excitement and this longing in my spirit to go in, but I knew I was unworthy. And it was really indicative of how I was living my life. I was always living my life outside the presence, outside the throne room. And as I was looking in this vision during this worship service, all of a sudden I saw, I looked down at the threshold of the door, and there was blood all over the threshold. And the Lord just spoke that simple these simple words to me and it was during that season there was this song had become very popular that we uh, come by the blood of the lamb we worship and we we enter by the blood of the lamb and the Lord was just telling me the only way for you to get in is you've got to cross through the blood the fact is just as the priest would bring a bowl of blood it was saying God it was communicating God I can't approach you based upon my own righteous life. I've got to bring the life of another. And so they would examine the sacrificial animals to make sure they were perfect. 
but it was only a temporary reprisal so they would have to come back next year, year after year after year until Jesus, who was both our high priest and our lamb, who would give his life as a lamb and then present his own righteous blood to the Father before the throne of God as our high priest. And in so doing, he presented, a, he satisfied the dream of God. He gave God the blood that his heart so longed for. And when he did so, God could say, my heart is satisfied. You see, this is what it meant when Jesus hung on the cross and he cried out, it is finished. What was finished? God's plan, God's requirement for a human life. Jesus had obeyed every righteous requirement of the Father, even unto death, the death of the cross, and he gave up his spirit. And in so doing, he presented God with a righteous life. So when we understand how God values the blood, we get a revelation of its value to us. How can I enter the presence of God. When I understand how God values it, I understand its value to me because it's by the blood of the Lamb that I can enter into the holy place. It's the blood of the Lamb that enables me to come before the throne of grace boldly worshiping. It's the blood of the Lamb. And I, I, During that season in the, the late 80s, early 90s, I would do this mental exercise often in worship and in prayer where I would come before the Lord because my my heart was always condemning itself and and uh, I, I was you know it's it's the sincere that are the most susceptible to legalism it's the sincere that are the most susceptible to condemnation if you are sincere and you don't understand the blood it is a recipe for condemnation and legalism if you are insincere and you don't understand the blood, you don't really care. And if you're sincere, but you understand the blood, then it's a protection against the condemnation, and it's a protection against legalism. But I was very sincere in my desire to serve the Lord, but I was uh, insufficient in my grasp of the blood of Jesus. And it set me up for legalism. And legalism is the, the lie that we have to earn the right to enter God's presence. And it sets us up for condemnation. It's two sides to that demonic coin. The one side, when I believe I have to earn God's favor, then the flip side is the enemy will leverage my failure in, in being righteous to condemn me. And so the answer to both of those, whether it be legalism, the lie that I have to earn my right to get into God's presence, and condemnation, disarming the enemy, the answer to both of those is the blood of the Lamb. And so once I understand the blood of Jesus, then I can enter God's presence. And some of you struggle with condemnation because of your sincerity. You really do care about grieving the Spirit of God. You really do care about not violating God's heart. But you don't understand the power of the blood. And so the enemy has you on a treadmill of trying to earn your own entrance into the, 
into the presence of God. And what God wants to do is he wants to teach you about the blood. Because once you understand the blood, the shed blood, then you can begin to sprinkle the blood over the doorpost of your heart, which protects you against the primary strategy of the enemy, which is condemnation. And so what we have to do is like the priest, like Jesus, our high priest, it's what I would do. I would go through these mental exercises, imagining I would come before the throne of God and I would say, God, I've I'm come to worship you. And I know the one requirement that you have of me is to present to you a perfect life. The entry fee into your presence is a perfect, spotless life. And Father, I know that in and of myself, I don't have that. I fall short. But I do know that your Son has already fulfilled every righteous requirement. I know that your Son has within himself that holy blood, that holy life, that perfected life. And I, bring, and I would picture myself walking into the presence of God, to the throne of God. And I would bow before him and I would present him with the bowl of blood. And I would imagine the Father saying, I'm satisfied. It is finished. And I would imagine the Father welcoming me in. And I was renewing my mind according to what the scripture really teaches us. And it took time, but my, my heart became acclimated to the reality of the gospel. And in that way, I was taking the shed blood and I was utilizing it as the sprinkled blood. The blood that was shed at, at, by, at the altar, the lamb's blood would be sprinkled or applied by the priests. And what Jesus did at the cross needs to be applied by you on your own life. But you'll not be able to do that unless you understand the value of the blood. God wants to welcome you into his presence. You can't earn your way in. Jesus already did that for you. What you need to do is admit you don't have it in and of yourself. If you hold to your own righteousness, you will, you will be set up for condemnation of the enemy, and rightly so. But when we hold to the righteousness of Jesus, it is literally the foundation, it's the beginning of maturity. Until that is a settled issue in your life, you are going to struggle with living the Christian life. It's when your justification in the blood becomes locked and loaded in your heart that you can begin that real process of sanctification and maturity. But if you are still in some form or fashion trying to earn the favor of the Father, it keeps you immature. So I want to invite you to pray with me this morning. And I'm going to ask you to just lay your hand on your heart. And we're going to pray, God, we are asking for a revelation of your blood. Lord, I ask that you would reveal to us what it means to you. That you took your son through a process of development. That through his suffering, he, was made, he learned obedience and one made, once made perfect, he became the source of our eternal salvation. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I ask that you'd help us to begin to realize that we enter your presence 
through the blood of the Lamb. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, if you don't know Jesus, that is the secret to coming into the Father. You need to be made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus died for you. He'll make you righteous by you putting your faith in the blood. If you're ready to make that decision, if you've made that decision this morning, we encourage you, write us this morning, get on our website, email us. We want to be a help to you. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.